Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Falgett, and I serve part-time here at Freedom Village as uh, the operations manager. And that means that I do a bit of the behind-the-scenes work and uh, planning. But today, I'm doing something a little different. I'm honored to be preaching today's sermon. So for those of you who do, do know me, you might be asking how I got myself into this situation. Um, I know that I've been asking myself that more than once. I've, uh, I've never done this before. And um, I can't say I've been motivated to speak much in public. However, when it was announced that we would be going through the book of Proverbs um, this summer, God put today's verse on my heart for the church. So, I can't say it was my intention to be up here, but then God had other plans. Okay, so before we get too far into today's verse, it's probably worth asking how I did get here. How did I get here uh, standing in front of you this morning to preach on a verse in Proverbs? Well, starting from the beginning, I was born in Houston, Texas, where I lived growing up. I have one younger brother, and my parents raised us in the church. And early on, I was pretty sure I knew what I was going to do in life. In elementary school, I was telling my parents I wanted to be a scientist. In middle school, I started a software company with some friends doing projects after school. And in high school, I started a rock band. <laughs> I went to Laterna University, which is a Christian school, also in Texas. And again, I was pretty sure I had it all figured out. I was either going to be a rock star or I was going to be the next Bill Gates. But one thing was absolutely for sure. I was never, ever going to leave Texas. But God had other plans. Okay, so after school, back in Houston, I met my wife, Mandy. And shortly after we started dating, she got a job offer to move to Korea. And it's a long story, but eventually we were married and we moved to Seoul. And we planned to stay for about a year. And uh, we ended up staying a few years, but we did go back to the States where we had our boys, James, who's nine, and Henry, who's six, and they're sitting in the back. And uh, about five years ago, we moved back to Korea. And when we came back to Korea, we were open to whatever God had planned for us. We didn't really know why God wanted us here, but we were confident that he did want us here. So another long story short, for those of you familiar with SIBC, Pastor Dan and his wife Sherry were family friends of ours from our first day in Korea. And so it was our expectation as a family that when we moved back to Korea, we would end up at SIBC. But as God would have it, he made it clear to me that I was to join Way Church, where I met Pastor James. And in particular, I needed to fill a role left open suddenly, helping with their tech. And so by God's providence, a little over a year ago, those two bodies came together, SIBC and Way, to here at Freedom Village. So... Here at Freedom Village, my intentions were to pretty much stay back there at the sound booth or safely behind a guitar. <laughs> but God had other plans. All right. So I think we're caught up for how I got here. Let's read today's verse. Uh, so this is from Proverbs 14.4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. 
but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Okay, so some of you are thinking, he's from Texas, I guess picking a cattle verse makes sense. (laughs) So first, let me say, the first time I saw a cow, I was probably in middle school, and it was out the window of our car, and that's about as close to a cow as I ever want to get. Okay. All right. Before we get into this verse, let's talk a little bit more about how I got here. Not here to the church, but here to Proverbs. If you had asked me a year ago, if I were to say, hypothetically choose to preach, what would I preach on? There's no way I would have said this verse, (laughs) nor would I have said anything about Proverbs. Okay, well, so shortly after returning to Korea, by God's grace, I found like a a renewed excitement about reading scripture. And for a while, it filled every available moment. I was uh, reading scripture, and if I wasn't, I was digging into intertestamental literature or reading the church fathers. And, uh, and, oh, and I was, I was uh, watching podcasts of Christian theologians, and it felt like a whole new world of information was opened up to me, uh, where I just wasn't seeing it before. And so I was looking at anything from, like, archaeological digs in Egypt to philosophical debates with atheists to language nuances in Hebrew and Greek. And I'm not much of a language guy, but I was really getting into it. And... Uh, When I can do all of that, I still do. Um, But that excitement made me particularly interested in exegetical study. And so that's kind of a fancy way of saying I wanted to learn the intent of the scripture in its context without bringing my own assumptions. And so in church, I wanted nothing more than to pick a book of the Bible and slowly go verse by verse. I wanted to learn the historical context. I wanted to learn the context within the scripture. And I wanted to learn the nuances of each verse in the original language. And what's more, I became fascinated with biblical patterns in scripture. And so what I mean by that is like a piece of narrative or theme that's woven throughout scripture that leads to Jesus. And we had a great example of this right before we started the Proverbs series when we were learning about biblical rest. So James took us through the Bible from creation, where we read that God created everything in six days and on the seventh day he rested, on to Moses and the commandments where the Israelites were commanded by God to observe the Sabbath. And then we talked about how Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and we read from Paul's letters to answer the question of whether or not we needed to keep the Sabbath on this side of the cross. So from one side of scripture to the other, and I love that. So that's what I would want to do. But, okay, so Proverbs. That's our summer book to go through. What issue do I have with Proverbs? Really, this is more of a personal preference thing, but generally, I'm not a Proverbs kind of guy. What do I mean by that? Well, so Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature. So that's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And in particular, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are written mostly in the voice of King Solomon. And both books generally come to the same conclusion. So, where Proverbs starts with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and instruction, 
Ecclesiastes ends by saying, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commands. Okay, so while both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have the same premise and the same source, other than that, they're almost nearly polar opposites. So when Proverbs is a call to seek wisdom as a guide to living well in God's world, Ecclesiastes says, I applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. Okay. So when it comes down to it, I'm more of an Ecclesiastes guy. (laughs) So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm naturally skeptical, perhaps overly skeptical. You can ask my wife, she'll verify. Um, If I'm sad or struggling, I do not want to hear an upbeat song. I want to hear a sad song. I'm kind of a wallower in that regard. So in some ways, to me, on its face, Proverbs feels too idealistic. And Ecclesiastes echoes what I see in the world. It makes me feel better to read it. But it's important to point out that both Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, if you remove the fear of the Lord when reading either book, they both become problematic. Ecclesiastes becomes as dire as it sounds, and Proverbs becomes unrealistic and perhaps a bit cliché just as any proverb from any source might be. So the Oxford Dictionary defines proverb as a short, pithy saying in general use, stating a general truth or a piece of advice. And so if we're not careful, when we read proverbs, that might be all we see, short, little, general truths. The English theologian Thomas Fuller, who in 1732 compiled his own book of proverbs, says of proverbs in general, Proverbs are to be accounted only as sauce to relish meat with, but not as substantial dishes to make a meal on. And if I'm not careful, that's how I see Proverbs here in Scripture. In some ways, perhaps, given my tendencies, it's better for me that I read Proverbs and that I read them slowly and carefully so that I can understand what they mean within the context of fearing the Lord. So let's do that together. So, within the book of Proverbs, our verse today is found roughly in the middle of the book. And the book itself can be divided into three parts. So, there's the first nine chapters, which include the introduction. We did chapter one uh, two weeks ago. Um, And then there's a bit of narrative. So, uh, in summary, both wisdom and folly are personified as women. And we hear from a father imparting wisdom to his son, telling him to seek after Lady Wisdom and to avoid Lady Folly, because with Lady Wisdom, there's blessing, and with Lady Folly, it ultimately leads to death. And so it wraps up with two poems from Lady Wisdom herself. Then the last two books of Proverbs are poetry as well, this time not from Solomon, but from two other guys named Augur, who we read from last week, and Limuel. And so those two books serve as somewhat of a conclusion. But the middle of the book, from chapters 10 to 29, That's where the Proverbs of Proverbs are. 
the short, pithy statements. And in particular, if you turn to any page within chapters 10 through 22, you'll find, with few exceptions, a list of two-line sayings. And each one of them could be on a t-shirt or a tweet. It's short, just like the one we read this morning, our verse. And so, with that, let's turn back to chapter 14 and see if we can determine by reading our verse in context. Let's see what we can find out. And we'll start in, in verse 3. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Well, okay, we have three Proverbs. Other than that, other than maybe sentence structure, there's nothing really popping out to me thematically. Let's turn to some commentaries and see if we're missing anything. So one of the easiest commentaries that everyone already has access to is already in your Bible. So pretty much for any translation, the translator has gone through and added section headers to help organize the scripture and kind of give us some sort of expectation as for what that section means. Uh, None of these section headers were in the original text. So, for example, the first header in the ESV for Proverbs 1 says, the beginning of knowledge. And for Proverbs 30, it says, the words of Agar. Makes sense. For chapter 14, the ESV says nothing. In fact, from chapter 10 on through 22, the only header added is the Proverbs of Solomon. So not much help there. So I searched around for as many commentaries as I could get my hands on, looking for any insight as to the context or any kind of theme for chapter 14. So after a lot of searching, I did find a Jewish rabbi, Dr. David Moster, who actually did comment on it, saying, Proverbs 14 is a collection of 35 sayings, most of which employ antithetical parallelism. Now, I'll get to what antithetical parallelism means in a bit, but... He goes on to say, there is no single theme that unifies the chapter. (laughs) Okay, so after some additional research, I found a lecture by what I found to be one of the most recommended scholars on Proverbs, and that's Dr. Bruce K. Waltke. So during the introduction to a four-part lecture that Dr. Waltke gave at Dallas Theological Seminary, he was introduced and described as the author of the most exhaustive commentary on Proverbs ever written. And the lecture series was entitled Preaching Fundamentals of Proverbs. So I got a little excited. I was like, this is perfect. It's exactly what I need. And I learned a great many things, but unfortunately, the lecture didn't touch on chapter 14. I did get his his commentary, however. It is a two-volume series, the first of which is 1,500 pages, covering the first 15 chapters of Proverbs, and within it, I kid you not, there is one single paragraph about our verse today. Let me read you some of it. Oxen refers to the tame and domesticated cattle. They were used for plowing, for pulling wagons, and for threshing. So literally facts about cows. Okay. Joking aside, I did find his material quite useful, and I'll lean on it today, but that was a long way to show that all the context that we're really going to get today 
for our verse is in today's verse. We know who wrote it down, but we don't know much else. We don't know when he necessarily wrote it or why this verse was written. Everything comes down to just two simple lines. And in fact, it's simpler than that. In Hebrew, each line of the two lines is four Hebrew words. It's on the screen. So the first word, where there are no, oxen, the manger is. Okay, so manger, let me stop here for a second. Manger here is the same thing from the Christmas story, you know, away in a manger. Okay, nobody sang along. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a feeding trough where you'd put the feed for the animals when they're eating in the stable. And so if you're like me, you're thinking of this cute little baby size uh, manger with a little bit of nice hay on the edge. But uh, what you should be picturing here is a big feeding trough for multiple cows, lots of cows, lots of mess. Okay, moving on. Fourth word, clean. So here's the second line. But much, crops come. And probably a better word than crop here is harvest. So this is more talking about what you get from the crops and not the number of crops. By the strength of the ox. Okay. Earlier, I mentioned from the quote, antithetical parallelism. Let's break that down. So this is a literary device used in much of Proverbs. It's parallel in that there are two statements being made, and we see that here with the two different lines. However, unlike a typical parallelism, which would restate the idea in each line, with antithetical parallelism, the second line is in contrast to the first. So in English, it's pretty clear, as there's typically a but uh, joining the two lines. And you'll hear this in Proverbs that say something like, if you do this, you're wise, but if you do this, you're a fool. Or things like, uh, things like this lead to life, but things like this lead to death, and so on. Okay, so eight Hebrew words and two phrases that are in contrast to each other. Well, as long as we're defining terms, one last thing, I promise, and then we'll dig into the text. I wanted to do a little review on some of the terms in Proverbs. And we know this already. I just wanted to go over it again and give us a picture in our heads. So in Proverbs this summer, we're going to talk a lot about wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Uh, when translating languages, words don't necessarily correlate one-to-one -one with other words in other languages. So when you see a word translated knowledge, and you see a word translated wisdom, the translators are trying to tease out nuances or subtle differences within the context to help us understand the original intent. And in this case, like in English, these three words kind of overlap a bit in meaning, but they differ in nuance. So to illustrate that, let's say that I walk into my kitchen at home and I pull a knife out of the drawer. I have some knowledge about this knife. It has a sharp side called a blade. It has a handle. It's made of metal. I understand that if I were to apply pressure and saw with the sharp side of the knife, then it's going to cut through my food, but it's not going to cut through my plate. Now, I'm wise if I'm careful with this knife, and I don't run around the house tossing it up in the air or swinging it around. So you kind of see the difference. And at the dinner table, our family, my boys will know this, uh, we have a little saying about knives. They're tools, not toys, right? 
Okay. So that's an example of a wise saying. It's not a fact. I don't know or understand that a knife is not a toy. In fact, I could easily yell like, on guard, and play like pirate sword fight with my kids at the dinner table. And then the knife would effectively become a toy, but that would not be a wise thing to do. Someone could get hurt. Okay, well, while no metaphor is perfect, let's talk for a moment about the phrase, fear the Lord. When I go into my knife drawer in my kitchen and I open it up, I don't jump back startled. I'm not afraid of the knives. However, I do have an understanding that if I do not deal with them properly, they can cut me. So I have a healthy fear of my kitchen knives. Now, my fear for my knives can in no way compare to the fear that we should hold for God and his glory. When Moses was talking to God before receiving the Ten Commandments, he said to God, please show me your glory. And so God goes to great lengths, putting Moses in an opening in a rock and covering Moses with his hand and only briefly just revealing his backside to Moses. And why? God tells Moses, his chosen one, who led his people out of Egypt, who he talks with alone on a mountain, that if he were to show Moses his face, Moses would die. God is so holy and so righteous that no sinful man, even Moses, can see his face and live. So that is truly a God to be feared. And so that's our starting place today. So let's put that verse back up on the screen. God has given us this proverb through Solomon to guide us to living well in his world. And we need to take it seriously and read with the fear of the Lord in mind. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Okay. So let's first look at this verse practically. Quite literally, this is advice for a farmer. What it says is that if you don't have a cow, you don't have to feed it, but if you want a good yield from your crops, you're going to need a cow. So to restate that a bit again, when, with oxen, you're going to get plenty of food, but then you're going to have to take care of an ox. So it sounds like pretty solid advice, but I think Solomon meant this for a broader audience. We were meant to take it somewhat figuratively. So I think the practical big picture of this verse is it's going to take a sacrifice so that you can do the work that produces great value. Let me say that again. It's going to take a sacrifice so that you can do the work that produces great value. So what happens if you don't get the ox? Probably not nothing. We learned earlier that the oxen are good for plowing, for pulling wagons, and for threshing. And looking at those options, I don't think I could do any of those on my own. Maybe some of you guys could, <laughs> but not me. However, I could probably grow some carrots. Um, and that leads me to my first point today. There will be work to do. So this verse today isn't implying that if you don't get the ox, you're going to starve. Rather, this is wisdom for how to get an abundant harvest. You've got to eat there's going to be work to do. The question is, what amount of sacrifice you're willing to put into it to get the real value? And let's face it, 
I really have no idea how hard it is to grow a carrot. Maybe it's just as hard to get a few carrots without an ox as it is to get wagons full with an ox. I don't know. So to some extent, really, what we're looking at here is that there's going to be work either way. What's wise is to go after that abundant harvest. So, if we are fearing the Lord, and if we are seeking his wisdom, and if it is wise to go after the abundant harvest, then that leads to one thing in particular, and that's my second point today. There will be a sacrifice. If you want to own some oxen to do all the heavy lifting you can't do on your own, you're going to have to feed them. You're going to have to keep them safe. And again, I don't know a lot about cattle, but I know they eat, so you're going to have to clean up after them. And it probably isn't going to be pretty. But again, moving away from the farm, I'd like to talk about what this means for the church. As a church, we want to fear the Lord, and we want to seek what is wise, and we want to go after the abundant harvest. So here at Freedom Village, what does that mean? It's going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean the giving of our time. It's going to mean the giving of our resources. It's going to mean the giving of ourselves. And look, I'm a volunteer staff here, so I feel perhaps a little bit freer to be specific with you here, church. This is going to mean for many of us the giving of our money. Our goal here at Freedom Village is not to keep the budget as low as possible. We are not here to maintain a level of comfort. Our mission is to glorify God in all things as we make disciples in our city, nation, and world. And that's a big goal. One of our values here is a heart for multiplication. We are seeking abundance. Making disciples is hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes a lot of time and effort. If you think planting carrots is hard, try planting churches. It takes a lot to grow a church. I'm going to put that on a shirt. All right. But listen, if you don't feel led to sacrifice here at Freedom Village, I urge you to find a church that you do feel led to sacrifice. It's not only good for the church, it's good for you too. It's how God intended us to live well in this world, in community with others, other believers that are sacrificing together. So if you want to know more about what we're doing here, we're going to have an FE 101 class we'll hold in the fall. Uh, and if you want to serve, please fill out a Connect card on the website. Look, COVID is ending. We have a lot ahead of us, and we're going to need people. Some of you have already reached out or are already involved, and that's excellent. We need, we're going to need people to serve our children. We, have a, we want to reach the youth of our city. We're going to need more missional family leaders. In the next few years, we plan on planting new churches. This church is going to need a lot of sacrifice. Okay, so my last point for today there will be an abundant harvest. Okay, so I, I just got done saying you need to give your money and time, and now I'm saying there's an abundant harvest. Some of you are all red flags. There's little heresy alarms going off in your head. Sounds like health and wealth to me. Well, before those at home turn off the YouTube, remember, I'm an Ecclesiastes kind of guy, okay? <laughs> One of the things I picked up as I was going through commentaries of Proverbs is that Proverbs are more about probability than about promises. Proverbs are not promises. 
It is how God says it should work, but we live in a fallen, broken world that doesn't follow God in its wisdom. A proverb is a general truth, but it doesn't cover the exceptions. So let's face it, under the sun, we are not guaranteed an abundant harvest. As a church, we could do all the right things. We could sacrifice, but there's no guarantee. So Christ's church will survive, but maybe not Freedom Village. Maybe not. A lot could happen. As a church, we might fail at the very thing we set our hearts on. There's a good chance that some of you sitting here or watching at home right now, you hear us talk a lot about missional family, but we failed you. You feel alone or unwanted, and I'm sorry. It's not how it should be. We're a lot of broken people here, but by God's grace, we can do better. And listen, if that's you today, reach out. Fill out a Connect card. Talk to somebody here. Talk to one of our leaders. We want to hear from you. Okay. Still with me? All right. So that last point again, there will be an abundant harvest. Well, here's how we're going to do this. All of that was Sunday school. We're going to take it to church. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and, and the earth. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So at the beginning of humanity, God's space and people's space overlapped. God walked in the garden with man. Mankind was in communion with God. There was work to do, but there was already abundance. God making every tree that was good for food in the garden means that Adam and Eve were without want. And we know how the story goes. There was one tree that they were forbidden to eat from, but they saw it, and as it says... The tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so Eve and then Adam did what was wise in their own eyes, and they ate, which led to a divide between a holy God and a fallen man. And God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But fortunately, this is the beginning to a story of redemption between mankind and God. God chooses a people to be set apart for, uh, for his work in the world, the Israelites. And from those people, those from the line of Levi were to be his priests. Those that would commune with God in the space where, once again, God's space and people's space overlap. And one of those who was from the house of Levi was Moses. Moses was chosen to lead God's people out of captivity from Egypt and as a final act by God, which led to the Egyptian pharaoh letting the Israelites leave Egypt, we have an event called the Passover. So each Israelite household was to choose a lamb without blemish. They were to take that lamb, sacrifice it, and spread the blood to the tops and the sides of their doorposts. So in Exodus it says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, 
as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And we see this practice of sacrificing the unblemished lamb extend through the times of Solomon's temple where the priest would sacrifice daily unblemished lambs and once a year a lamb to atone for the sins of the people. And they would sprinkle that blood on the altar in the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, the one place on earth where God's space and people's space overlapped at the time. But after the times of Solomon, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the people, both of which came true in his lifetime. Yet Isaiah also brought hope. He prophesied the following. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Okay, so in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, we're introduced to a different John, John the Baptist, who has been baptizing and preaching in the wilderness. And when the Jews send priests to ask John who he was, he tells them, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then the following day from that, John sees Jesus approach and he proclaims to everyone, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So John knew who Isaiah was talking about and who Jesus was. Jesus was the Son of God, the Word made flesh. He was Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's space and people's space overlapped once again in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Chosen One. So Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He was sinless, unblemished. And when he was dying on the cross, a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world, with his dying breath, he said, it is finished. The work is finished. The sacrifice is complete. And after three days, showing his power over death, he rose from the grave. And afterwards, he ascended into heaven. And in Hebrews, it says... And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, offered, uh, when Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice, single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's seated. And why? Because our priest and mediator to God the Father is in heaven, but the work and the sacrifice and the redemption that was needed to restore the relationship between mankind and God is done. So after Christ descended into heaven, another was sent, a counselor for us, the Holy Spirit who is God dwelling within us as believers and as the church. So as the new temple. And the scripture says that he, the Holy Spirit, will teach us all things. It's the source of wisdom. So God's space and people's space now overlap within the church. And I don't mean this building, but within the body of believers. So when we say, 
go be the church, all of that history of being holy and set apart and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus, we are to represent that to the world, to live with his wisdom of the Holy Spirit who's within us. So, in light of the gospel, Jesus did the work and Jesus made the sacrifice. So let's talk about the abundant harvest. Both Isaiah and John speak of the coming of a new heaven and a new earth with the restoration of creation. This fits in so well with the verse we read during the welcome. It is the restoration of the garden when mankind can once again be in perfect commune with God. And Isaiah speaks of it like this. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. They will see the glory of God and the splendor of our God. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool of water and the thirsty land springs of water. The redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. So then John, in Revelation, speaks of a new Jerusalem, where he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And what that means is when God's space and people's space overlap, and there is no division, there's no need for a temple. There's no work to do. There's no sacrifice to be made. Jesus the Lamb, sent by God the Father, finished it. And John goes on describing, saying, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I know I said earlier that Proverbs are not promises, but praise God, today's is. In God's redemptive narrative, for you and I, Christian, this one is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's abundance. It's a promise. It's guaranteed for those who believe. And what's more, it's an abundance you can't get on your own. You could care for a hundred cows, and you're never going to get there. The psalmist says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is one way of saying it's more than you can imagine. The psalmist also says of God, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And what we are being offered isn't just one day, it's eternity. So I'll end here by reading from Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay. So I said I would end it here, and I don't want to keep talking endlessly, but I do have one final idea. And you know, why don't I go ahead and call back up the worship team?
Um, this will only take a second. But I am a bit stubborn. Going back, I want to look at that context of chapter 14 just one more time, okay? Um, what if we were to look at chapter 14 for more verses about work? And sure enough, I found one. Verse 23 says, There is profit in all hard work. It's perfect, right? It's almost exactly what we were talking about. Okay, so line two. But endless talk leads only to poverty. Okay, and with that, I'll pray. <laughs>